Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicole Corrado, Professor of Political Sociology at the Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra, Australia, and co-host of the channel. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Risa J. Toha of Yale NUS College in Singapore. Risa is the author of Rioting for Representation, Local Ethnic Mobilization and Democratizing Countries, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. The book examines the conditions that inflame ethnic riots after the fall of authoritarian rule, as well as the factors that allow violence to subside. The focus of the book is on post-1998 Indonesia, but the insights put forward provoke reflections on many other experiences around the world. I'll repeat that. The book examines the conditions that inflame ethnic riots after the fall of authoritarian rule, as well as the factors that allow violence to subside. The focus of the book is on post-1998 Indonesia, but the insights put forward provoke reflections on many other experiences around the world. Welcome, Risa. Thank you, Nicole. It's really great to be here. I'm glad this finally happened. I'm so excited (laughs) to talk to you about the book. So let's start with a puzzle that you set out in the very beginning of the book. You told us the story of Ambon in the Maluku province and Maluku Tonggara, a neighboring district. And these two areas have very different experiences of ethnic violence after the ouster of President Suharto. So tell us what you learned about ethnic violence by studying these two areas. Thank you, Nicole. Well, one of the main things that I came away with from studying the two administrative units in Maluku, uh, Ambon and Maluku Tenggara, is that essentially ethnic violence is not inevitable in ethnically diverse areas during political transition. Uh, a lot of the insights in political science have basically said that political transitions are rife with tensions, especially in countries with uh, with a lot of different ethnic groups, um, because ethnic groups are trying to secure their 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 position in the in the new government, and because of, of fear of and uncertainties of what is going to happen to them in in the new government. Um, however, when I look at both Ambon and Maluku Tenggara, what I find is that these two administrative units are actually relatively similar on a lot of different dimensions that people often associate with the outbursts of violence between groups. Um, Ambon and Maluku Tenggara are both uh, ethnically and religiously diverse. They have similar levels of economic development, even though Ambon has higher higher levels of GDP per capita. Um, they're also relatively distant from uh, the center of the capital, um, the, the capital of Jakarta, Indonesia. Um, and um, they are, they're, <laughs> they're both in the Maluku province. Um, 
Yet, despite these similarities, there is one very key difference uh, between the separating these two administrative units, and that is the role of the local leaders during the um, uh, during the, the the tensions and during the tra- the political transition in 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 the nineteen nineties in Ambon. Uh, based on what I have learned from my interviews and, and what I've read, um, local leaders can uh, have actually been reported to be very directly involved in framing and also in 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 part in 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 also in in mobilizing violence. Whereas in Maluku Tenggara, local leaders are 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 more seen to work very hard to quell violence by relying on local ethnic uh, networks and local ethnic uh, local adat traditions. Um, almost nobody in Ambon believed that violence in Ambon was spontaneous. Instead, uh, different people that I've spoken to said that, well, you know, it seems very hard to see to say that you know not not that nobody else is uh, knows that the, uh, that events are are developing and that conflict is being prepared and that um, clashes is oncoming. Uh, whereas in Maluku Tenggara, um, events are uh, incidents are not a surprise either because uh, political actors in Maluku Tenggara have witnessed uh, the developments in Ambon and they ha- there have been uh, anticipation of things spreading to Maluku Tenggara. But um, in- instead of uh, local leaders in Maluku Tenggara participating in violence and mobilizing more, more clashes, what people have done in Maluku Tenggara, and at least what people have told me, is that they resort to other institutions and work very hard to ensure that nobody else participated in violence such that clashes would uh, would dissipate relatively quickly so in some I mean there's there's a lot going on of course uh, in, in, when it comes to the mobilization of violence but one very key importance is that how, is how political leaders in these units actually respond to trigger events and what they do to basically stop and change the narrative such that violence eventually uh, lose its significance I mean that's that's such an important point you you make the point that it's not inherent ethnic or cultural differences that that drive violence and I love how how forcefully you made the point that it's not about culture it's about um, the way the leaders adapt to trigger events and the extent of political exclusion that drives um, violence so I guess my question is uh, to what extent can institutions be designed? So you talk about seemingly mundane and everyday forms of of institutions like administrative units in Indonesia, but how much do they actually matter as mechanisms to, I guess, redistribute resources and, and cultivate peace, right? So what does it take then to have successful institutions in addressing the issue of political violence. Thank you, Nicole. I'm so glad that you mentioned that um, uh, one of the things that motivated local leaders in and in and shape and shape how they react to trigger events is whether or not they see that political institutions within their area can 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 actually accommodate their desire for for greater representation. Um, in Ambon, uh, my book basically, ar- my book argues that pol- political leaders in Ambon find that uh, existing institutions, primarily elections, uh, fail to uh, accommodate their demands. Uh, and as a result, they turn to um, uh, more informal means of part- political participation and to, and, and to violence in order to articulate their demands for for inclusion in Maluku Tenggara, on the other hand, there's not as much urgency and not as much uh, uh, grievance and, and sense that uh, p- local political leaders are politically excluded from institutions. So what 
so I guess this is a long roundabout way of answering the question of like, what does it, what, what, what does it mean to have a successful institution? What is a good institution, and how does a good in, uh, an institution uh, avoid um, articulations of violence or utilizations of violence? Well, in in the context of political transitions, one of the key concerns of different political actors is whether or not they will continue to enjoy the goods of the state uh, in the new regime. Um, if they anticipate that the new institutions are going to exclude them from the distribution of resources, from political representation and political decision making, then they're they're going to man, um, uh, maneuver and plan such that they, they their their position in the new government will be more favorable. So, uh, in that sense, then an, a good institution is one that can actually uh, ensure that key groups and political leaders who claim to represent these groups will be able to participate in institutions and also be represented and um, and be part of the decision-making process. Um, in one very minimal expectation of this is the effectiveness of elections. How effectively can elections actually accommodate demands and electoral interests of various groups within the within the within a, within an area? If the elections are only going to exclude uh, these key groups, then these key groups have to turn to something else uh, in order to, you know, to secure their position in the new government. Um, so, yeah, so the strength of an institution depends on the strength of an election. And in the case of Indonesia, we see that initially elections didn't seem to be favorable for the purposes of those people who, who have felt like they have been neglected and excluded from, from politics. But then over time, and actually, relatively quickly, elections became uh, much more adapt and 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 much more competitive, and uh, and 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 able to represent the interests of different groups of uh, different groups. Yeah, I, I very much actually enjoy enjoy that account, and I guess to link it to the theoretical aspects of your book, you were talking about um, Hirschman's work on voice exit on loyalty, and if I'm not mistaken, you conceptualized violence as as a form of, of voice, as you mentioned a while ago. So when uh, when institutions of political transition uh, are weak, such as elections, uh, disgruntled people may express their voice um, through violence. And I suppose to continue this line of argument, the book also argues that once institutions become stronger, uh, violence dissipates. Maybe I am reacting from the perspective of someone studying the Philippines, so all my frustrations are now uh, starting to come out. Um, But I, I, I wonder whether you also found that I mean, I guess the question is, what's in it for local elites, right? What what do they gain? Um, from strengthening these institutions. I imagine some political elites have something to gain from weak political institutions, even if that means constantly suppressing violence. So what what can we learn from Indonesia? Oh, thank you. Um, So I guess there are different groups of actors involved at different levels of government. And in in the case of the Philippines, this is because it's also similar, it's also decentralized. Um, There there are central central political actors, central uh, political actors, the central government, and there are also local political actors in the local governments. Um, In terms of institutional design, electoral systems are not... There, there's only so much that electoral systems can be redesigned uh, by local political actors. Uh, but, it, it, but so, so to the extent that electoral systems are are fixed 
and designed by the central political actors, um, the political, the central, the national level political actors have all the interest to ensure that their electoral institutions are actually strong and able to uh, accommodate different groups in, in, in political institutions. Now, whether or not these designs are actually then enforced uh, at the local level and how much um, how much penalty there remains when there are questionable actual practices at the local level, that's, that's an open question. Um, and for local elites, uh, they, you, we have to assume that the mobilization of violence is a costly, is a costly decision and it's a costly action. Um, and that it would be easier to rally people to vote and to win elections uh, through the through the official means than to actually mobilize violence and then to pay, to pay the to pay the penalty and the consequences of being involved in in violence. Now this means that for the central government and the central the national level political actors, there has to be a system of uh, one, not only ensuring that elections are capable of reflecting the interests of different groups of people, but also that there are penalties associated or imposed on people who are seen and proven to be um, guilty (laughs) of mobilizing violence. Uh, Because if violence is costly, then there's not going to be as much incentive uh, for different groups of people to, to, to engage in it. Um, but then for local elites, um, they can actually also stand to gain from a, a strong political institution. To the extent that political institutions actually are secure and stable and reliable, they can ensure that there would be a, a, a repeated interaction and they can they can hope that, okay, once they're elected, they can hope to be reelected, uh, which I guess is a, is a, is a, is a difference. Um, but, you know, but... For this to happen, the national political actors have to already determine uh, the the context of what is possible for Indonesian political actors at at various administrative units. Right. Fantastic. Let's um, shift gears a bit and talk about research methods. And I think it was in your acknowledgement section where you mentioned your first fieldwork experience in a post-conflict context was during your time as a consultant for, was it the World Bank Social Development Unit in Jakarta? So I guess my question is, what do you think are the similarities and differences uh, of doing fieldwork as a, from a social development perspective or a practice-oriented perspective versus doing fieldwork for academic purposes? I think what the, big, the big difference, I'll start with the differences first and then I'll move on to the similarities. The big difference is that uh, there is a very um, a strong focus and strong, uh, 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 a great urgency for um, how do we fix things? When, 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 uh, when, when I went on uh, to the field with uh, with with uh, a, a number of people from the World Bank, um, the people that we met, uh, because they knew we came from the World Bank, the things that they revealed to us, um, while they they contain information about the process and the, the development of, of violence and whatnot, but um, there the emphasis was more about what the village or the community actually needed. It was more about, okay, uh, this mosque is destroyed or, you know, we need a well or we need, we need this, you know, a a new road, et cetera. Um, So the articulation of the, 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 the themes and the, and the topics of the conversation lean towards, um, you know, the, the the pressing needs of of the community at the time. Um, 
we had to gently <laughs> uh, remind people, okay, well, we also want to understand who are the different groups of people that are involved in, in the clashes and, 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 you know, how did the conflict actually develop and whatnot to, to be able to get a, a better background and better understanding of the specific incidents that affected this community, each community that we, that we met. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't natural for the conversation to lean in that direction. Whereas for an academic um, fieldwork in, uh, purpose, because I I went in basically by myself with with you know with with uh, the company of one or two uh, friends that I already knew from prior work, um, and I didn't come with the the big name of the World Bank and whatnot. So. That means that not as many people wanted to speak with me. Uh, that, that, that's the first thing, and then and then the second thing is I also had to explain uh, many times, you know, why I was there and why I was interested in talking to them, and I was also more mindful of the fact that you know I, I didn't really have much that I could bring in terms of material. Um, you know, benefits or uh, or resources. I was really there actually to just hear hear their stories and understand, um, you know, how conflict developed in in in, in these in the in, in their community. Um, so so that's that's a that's a big difference. I felt like I was more of a, I guess for lack of a better term, an intruder, um, and I was I was very humbled by how. How generous they were, uh, the people that I met with, um, you know, shared their time and, and their experiences with me. Um, now, in terms of the kinds of conversations that I had uh, during my field work for my dissertation and and, and for this book, um, I it, it was much slower, I must say, because I kept thinking about the list of different theories that I had in mind. Uh, that I had developed ex ante prior to arriving to the field, and then thinking about the various implications that would uh, confirm or, or disqualify different theories. And so, as my uh, interviewees were speaking and I was taking notes and whatnot, um, I had a running conversation in the back of my mind of, okay, what is like, what does this mean then for this hypothesis or that hypothesis? Um, and and oftentimes I had to actually go back to the same group of people, the same interviewees, and then and check, okay, is this really what you meant? And, and then uh, after I have, you know, worked out more fully, you know, the implications of different uh, theories you know, after the conversation. So it was, it, it was a much more iterative process. It was much slower. And then I felt, and, and, and to be honest, much harder because I had to go back to my notes and think about, okay, this, this might not necessarily actually confirm what, what I thought. And then, you know, I have to come up with a different kind, different uh, explanation. Um, but okay. you know, so, so the voice exit loyalty um, framework was that was that a framework that emerged after the field work as part of that iterative process, or did you enter the field with that theoretical background already? So, I entered the field with the understanding that political transitions are often, you know, violent. Um, because that that's a that's a generally established and accepted uh, insight in the in the political science literature, the exit voice and and and, and loyalty framework that's actually something that I came uh, that I stumbled onto much later in in the development of the book. So even long after the field work and after the, the dissertation had been written and submitted and whatnot, um, 
I, as I was writing the book, the manuscript, I thought, okay, what, how can we, how can I actually think about this and express this in a, in an elegant way that that encapsulates all the different considerations um, that that political actors in in these different administrative units were probably were thinking about, and. Um, so, so it's not that, you know, my interviewees in Ambon or in Poso or in Maluku Tenggara are saying, oh, yeah, we want to exit this, <laughs> this administrative unit because we feel like we, you know, we have no hope and whatnot. Um, so I, that, that framework is, is, is something that I, that I found much that, that I discovered later that actually seems to, that elegantly captures the, the dynamics that's going on. Oh, that is certainly inspirational, especially for people who are doing their dissertations or writing a book, who are grappling with such complex data, but the frameworks aren't really speaking to that data. So thank you for sharing that. Um, if, if I may also add, I mean, one of the features of the book that I really liked is how you really focused on the local. And I think the book demonstrates the significance of studying the local instead of Focusing, focusing our gaze to the highest levels of government, um, especially during political transitions. So perhaps you can say, I don't know, a few words of encouragement to our listeners about the value of focusing our analysis on the level of districts and municipalities. So I guess, as I ask this question, I have reviewer two in mind, the nasty reviewer of books and articles who usually say that, you know, your case is so small. What big ideas do small cases offer? <laughs> Thank you. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I've, I've, ha- I've had review- many reviewer twos in my life. <laughs> right. Shout uh, out to them. <laughs> so I, I completely understand where you're coming from, Nicole. Um, yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of value in focusing on the, on the micro and, and, the, and the local level dynamics. I, I even think that, you know, my my focus on the districts and the municipalities might not even be local enough. I mean, you could always go farther down. Like you could look at the subdistricts, you could look at the villages, you could look at the individuals. Um, I I chose to focus uh, my analysis on the districts and municipalities because, at least in terms of the 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 contention and the dynamics and the negotiation uh, in uh, for political resources. Um, especially after uh, democratic transition, much of the decision-making and, and, and then the negotiation and the competition was happening at the district and the municipality level. Um, this is not to say that um, political actors in the provincial or in the national level are not at all important or that they do not somehow shape the dynamics. Uh, and similarly, or that you know, political actors in the villages are not important. Um, it's just that this is the, the arena of competition in the in the in the post transition Indonesia was a lot more uh, relevant at the uh, at the district and in the municipality level. Um, now, in terms of what what can we learn by by looking at districts and municipalities and not just at Jakarta? Um, well, we can actually we can actually see so many different groups of people and so many different administrative units just by simply by looking at districts and municipalities. The number of observations and cases that are available for analysis multiplied by hundreds, uh, because there are um, to, to my uh, to my last count, at least, but for the period that I analyze in the book. Um, the, there are f- f- anywhere from 300 districts and, and municipalities in, in Indonesia through fi- to, to 543 um, districts and, and municipalities. So it's, um, 
you, you, you gain multiple observations. And because of that, you can also see a lot more uh, variation in the dynamics, which means uh, there's more opportunity for testing your hypothesis and thinking about, okay, if, you know, this, this, uh, this particular factor is present, do we actually see the resulting consequence of, you know, the, the expected outcome that we think we should see? Um, so, so that's, that's one, one important uh, value. The second important value, I, I think, is, is in terms of uh, mechanism and understanding what actually lies behind the, the big argument. You know, how, how do we actually see um, political transition producing uh, uh, different, different types of violence, or, or specifically in this book, ethnic violence? Um, what is actually happening? And when we look at the district and the municipality level, we can focus our gaze on the specific groups of people and the political actors at a particular district and municipality, and thus understand the motivations and the rhetoric and the the interactions and the, and the consequences of their interactions at the specific unit. Um, I mean, you can we can do the same at the national level as well, but again, because there's only one <laughs> one Jakarta, one Jakarta um, and a, in, a, in, a, in a group of political actors that are involved in the national level, um, then you kind of li- we limit the variation uh, that's at work. I mean, those are fantastic justifications. So reviewer two, please understand. <laughs> um, f- finally, Risa, we usually ask our guests in the podcast to give us a teaser of what we can expect from your research um, in the coming years, you produced a pandemic baby in the form of this book. <laughs> so what have you been up to? What, what projects are you working on right now? Um, I, I'm building up on uh, my prior research on, on uh, riot, ethnic riots during political transition. And I actually, now I'm focusing on how, what do people do and what happens to I- politics of identity and identity-based mobilization in the post-transition uh, context. So specifically, I am looking at how different different ethnic groups and different religious communities um, express, articulate, manipulate, and mobilize their different dimensions of identity. And what does this actually mean in terms of their attachment, their identification, and their engagement with the national, with the state? Are um, I don't like as you might, as we had spoken spoken earlier. I don't think that ethnic diversity or culture alone uh, inevitably predicts violence, or in, in or vice versa, or that um, national political uh, identity can only be uh, strong if uh, a state is ethnically homogenous. Um, so what I'm interested in right now is to understand how do different ethnic groups or different religious groups uh, develop a strong national identification to their p- national political community? And what does this actually mean uh, in terms of institutional design, in terms of interactions between ethnic groups or different groups at the local level, um, and also in terms of policy making? Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Risa. I enjoyed talking to you about your book. Thank you, Nicole. I really enjoyed this conversation. (laughs) Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share. Dr. Risa J. Toha is the author of Rioting for Representation, Local Ethnic Mobilization in Democratizing Countries, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. 
This has been one of hundreds of conversations about other Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favorite podcast app. Thank you.